Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. Today our show is uh, pretty exciting and we're talking today about gender differences in recovery from addictive disorders. And our guest today is Donna Carante, who has almost 20 years of professional experience in the addiction profession. She has directed and developed substance abuse programs encompassing all levels of care for residential and outpatient programs and for employee assistance program management as well. Donna has a national speaker. She's an educator and writer regarding addiction, and she is a recipient of the 2004 Michael Q. Ford National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers Journalism Award for a series of our articles published in the Counselor Magazine from August 4th, from August 04 through December 04, regarding the influence of hormonal shifting on women and their process of recovery. Donna has a master's level uh, certified addictions professional with the state of Florida, and she is a certified addiction specialist with the American Academy of Healthcare Providers and Addictive Disorders. Welcome, Donna, to our show today. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Um, this is a, a great topic because I think we are really still in the beginning of understanding how addiction varies and substance use varies between men and women. And for years, we've known a lot about um, how to treat white middle-aged men, and I think we're just really beginning to understand how to treat women and people of color. So, it, it, it's absolutely a fascinating subject for me, and it it um, I became involved with looking at it a little bit closer. Oh, just as I was getting involved in the field. And what What made you decide to to look at this as a uh, is a different type of treatment. Well, my own personal experience, and that's where the hormonal shifting piece comes in. I probably had about 10 years of recovery at the time, and I was around 42, and I hit a wall because I was perimenopausal. And um, nobody knew what perimenopause was. Maybe you so, can explain it a little bit for... I think some people still don't understand it. Well, I think people have difficulty understanding it, and then there's the other piece where we have difficulty accepting it. <laughs> but it's um, essentially it's a time in a woman's life where we start to, um, our hormonal shifting becomes more intense. And our levels of hormones and the balance between estrogen and progesterone are really off. So it's that period of time where a woman's physiology is slowing down um, from with her menstrual cycle. So a female will have, you, you might have, an, instead of having a menstrual cycle for five days, you might all of a sudden have it for three. Then it goes down to two or it becomes very spotty. And, on, and that's on a very physical level. On an emotional uh, level, what ends up happening is our moods have a tendency to get a little bit more exacerbated than what they typically were. And, you know, that's the PMS, uh, premenstrual syndrome, that we often talk about. And when you become perimenopausal, it's, you know, and it can happen for women. We talk about it starting like in your early 40s 
and going through into your 50s, it could be a 10 or 12 year process, you know, and, but women can also experience that in their 30s and not know it. Unless we, unless we have the, the sense enough to talk to our gynecologist and say, hey, do some estrogen level checks on me or hormone checks on me and see where I am, you know, we could have someone, especially who's in recovery, who's in their mid-30s, starting to experience perimenopause, not know it, and go through all sorts of hormonal shifting issues from spirituality, psychological, physical, um, and have that impact her recovery. That's pretty much what happened to me. I became extremely emotional. Um, I was a therapist, and I was running groups and giving lectures, and what happened is all of a sudden I would break out into this huge hot flash and I didn't know what it was about. And, you know, and I kind of like let that go in the beginning and then I'm in a session in a group and I start to get really emotional. I start to cry when I'm listening to one of my patients tell their story. You know, and, and for me as a therapist, you know, it was more important for me to be able to stay with that patient and be able to um, nurture and care instead of getting involved in my emotions relative to that. So, you know, I ended up going to a gynecologist and thought, you know, if I hadn't had 10 years of recovery, I don't know if I wouldn't have relapsed. You know, I had I had support, but even in the women's groups, you know, nobody talked about, you know, menstrual cycling and, and how that impacted our recovery process. Well, and to even kind of back up from there, uh, for a lot of women who are um, actively abusing um, alcohol and other drugs, their uh, menses stops. Mm-hmm. And so exactly. that even early recovery, even before you get menopausal or perimenopausal, um, the horror hom- hormones are such an important part of a woman's recovery. And I don't really think we teach women enough about that in early recovery. No, and pretty much what we do is we do assessments and we ask them if their menstrual cycle has been regular, you know, and we do a real quick physical assessment on that. And if it is, it's not an issue. If it's if it happens to be a female who happens to be an opiate addict, then we know that their menstrual cycle is not regular, you know, and we have to wait for a few months before we can even do any assessing on that. But, you know, it's pretty much it's addressed from a more physical point of view Although my sense from talking to some people, um, some professionals who are running women's programs, they're starting to get a little bit more into a more holistic approach around that whole piece in terms of menstrual cycle and hormonal shifting, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. I think it's a good thing for women in general um, Mm -hmm. because I, I really think that there's a disconnect sometimes between what a woman experiences and it's, it's miss diagnosed or it's misinterpreted when some of it is just part of your natural cycle. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the the piece I think that's interesting is once you start to really look at this and you start to help help women identify when their menstrual cycle is coming. You know, I I had a, um, a woman in treatment who came into, I was running an adult outpatient treatment program and she had been through um, some residential programs, and now she was doing outpatient because, you know, it was almost what we call diminishing returns. You know, she could probably get up and give the lectures mm-hmm. <laughs> with all the yeah. treatment that she had. And um, she came in to see me, and she said, I don't understand. She goes, I know how to do the steps. I understand the steps. I read the big book. I do my meditation. 
but you know, you know, I end up relapsing every month. And I said, really? And we started to look at it, and her relapse started to come around. Her triggers started to happen right around the time where she was more, most intensely premenstrual. So it was typically right before her period. Which, which is a time we know when people crave salt right. or they crave sugar or they crave mm-hmm. chocolate, and mm-hmm. those cravings can be very similar to cravings for alcohol and other drugs. Right. And so once we identified that, we were able to work on a care plan, you know, to develop some of the stop gaps for her. So what would a care plan look like for someone like her? Well, and it, you know, if we can get to the point where we can identify at, you know, when our cycle, when, when we are becoming premenstrual, then we can look for people to help us with that. So, for instance, if I know that um, my period is going to be in 10 days from now, I know within the next 10-day window that things are going to start to happen with me, so I can start to talk to a sponsor about it, talk to other women in the program about it, watch what I'm eating. That's the one thing, uh, as women, we never want to hear about. (laughs) You know, we don't want to hear that, you know, eating chocolate and um, caffeine and, you know, sugar, which is probably what we crave the most, it's not the best for us at that time because it just exacerbates our symptoms. You know, so if we can do that and we can start to put that into what we what we call, you know, our relapse prevention plan, then, you know, we we stand a, a shot at getting through at least through the first six months of identifying, you know, our behavior pattern and changing that behavior pattern. What are the types of symptoms you had mentioned earlier? A little, a few of them. But if for, for a woman who's been in recovery for a couple of years, what might she notice from a symptom perspective? For perimenopause or premenstrual? Yeah, for perimenopause. For um, I think I think that that's an underrated part of of the development of menopause. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I think so too. Um, For perimenopause, what we might notice is, and it it happens on all levels of our being, okay? happens on a spiritual, physical, and emotional level. We might notice that our PMS symptoms are are more intensified. So, for instance, if we have a tendency to be uh, more emotional or more hyper um, during that PMS time, then it can get a little bit more. It's, It's a little bit more exacerbated. If we have a tendency to experience depression, and that will become more exacerbated, women typically in their early 40s that are starting perimenopause might be identified with um, depression, depressive symptoms, and maybe going to see a therapist or, or, or a medical doc, and they say, well, you're depressed, and they're prescribed Prozac or Zoloft. You know, or one of the SSRIs, which is not a bad thing because the estrogen, actually, when we are our estrogen is depleting, um, that affects our serotonin, and you know that that affects our sense of well-being. So, what we have a tendency to feel as we're starting through our perimenopause, and this is not every single woman. There are some women who don't experience any perimenopausal symptoms. Um, there, yeah, there are a few lucky women that just fail through it. And, right. Uh, we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about hormonal shifting and women in recovery. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with um, Donna Corrente today about hormonal shifting in early recovery and about perimenopause in general for uh, for women because women, all women, can experience this. And um, we were talking about some of the symptoms uh, that women experience. And I know from my own personal experience, sleep, uh, not being able to sleep or waking up in the middle of the night um, was one of the things that I first started to notice um, during that perimenopausal time. And the other thing that I noticed was how long that whole episode was. I mean, that that was like years. And I kept saying to my doctor, something's different. And he'd say to me, you're, you know, we did the blood test, you're okay. But I didn't feel okay inside. I knew something was changing. Well, what's interesting is that uh, oh, it had to be, I bet it was like six or seven years ago I was home from work from a surgery that I had had and I had Oprah Winfrey on and Oprah was talking and I couldn't believe it because I had just started doing some work at a treatment center developing a hormonal shift assessment tool and Oprah started talking about how she thought that she was having a heart attack one day and she had palpitations and you know she just felt really weak and then she felt exhausted all the time and she went to several cardiologists who said, no, there was nothing wrong with her. And finally, she um, for, I guess she found out about who Christine Northrup is, who's done a lot, a lot of work in um, helping women identify and understand menopause and perimenopause. 
and she actually was able to go see her because, of course, Oprah can go see just about anybody she wants. <laughs> and, and she got in to see her, and she found out that she was perimenopausal. And all the symptoms that she had, which she thought she was dying, she thought she was having a heart attack, were perimenopausal symptoms. Now, that's not to say that if we feel that those palpitations that we shouldn't go get it checked out. Um, but the thing is that it, it can mask a lot of different things, and then it creates a lot of fear for us. But essentially, it's kind of what you said, Maria. Like, we will have sleep disturbance. That's that's normal. That happens with perimenopause, and our libido suffers. You know, all of a sudden, our sex drive drops. Um, we just are tired all the time. We have hot flashes. We have night sweats. Um, we have weight gain, and the weight gain isn't just strictly from you know our, our metabolism. It has to do with the fact that. We are in this whole process of change. Our whole body is changing and shifting, and our hormones are impacting that. So, I mean, it's it's frightening enough when, as women, we're healthy and we're in recovery, or if we're not in recovery, we're just healthy women, you know. But to go through this, for instance, when we're when we're in early recovery, um, can be so terrifying. Or to go through it when we're five or six years in recovery and we don't know what it is and we don't have anybody around that can identify for us what we're going through. Right. You know, because we, certainly our mothers didn't talk about it or if they even recognized it. No, my mother didn't. <laughs> my mother's still in denial about the fact that she went through it herself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, today, fortunately, we're talking more openly about it. You know, they've they've had a lot of coverage in the media, and there's still some question as to whether it exists. It exists. It, and it's the same issue for men. You know, um, men go through a similar process, but it's harder to identify for men because they don't have that physical component to say, yes, you are going through this, this change process. And that's what it is. It's a huge life change process for us, not just on a, a spiritual level, but it's on a physiological, holistic level for all of us. You know, when, when we think about recovery and we think about um, triggers for relapse, while you were talking, I was thinking about a couple things. One is how oftentimes in early recovery it's hard to get to sleep anyway. So if, you're, if you've been sober a number of years and now you're sleeping well, and all of a sudden you're not sleeping again, I would think that would be a huge trigger or someone could go and get, you know, prescribed sleeping medication that they don't really need. Um, and that, that could lead to a downward spiral. The other thing is the whole body image um, issues that most women have. And, you know, women who are in recovery, you know, they're feeling good about themselves and all of a sudden with perimenopause, the subtle body changes and then you hit menopause and then, you know, everything changes. So what about the whole um, the whole image, self-image issues with this? Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, women have come into treatment who have relapsed using sleep aids. They've also relapsed because they started using diet aids. And the sleep aids that they started with were over-the-counter. Yeah. And then they weren't effective. And so they got something a little bit stronger. And the same thing with the diet aids. 
you know, and the, the question that comes up is, you know, and, and of course this is from somebody who's a professional and also has, you know, long-term recovery, is instead of trying to fix our problem by taking a pill, such as a diet aid or a sleep aid, we need to take a closer look at what really is, what is really going on. As an alcoholic and an addict, what our tendency to do is to look for the, the quick way and the quick fix. And sometimes we don't even think to identify that it could be some sort of medical issue that we really need to process. Now, I think the longer we're in recovery, the better chance we have of taking that higher road. The shorter recovery we have, we're not thinking as clearly. You know, and that makes sense because it, it takes a long time for our brain to come back to a healthy function for us to think more clearly. So that's that's a little bit scary, you know, and, I, and I've seen women come in who've had like five years of recovery relapse and couldn't figure out why they relapsed because they were doing everything they were supposed to do. And then when you really, you know, dig into the assessment, you find out that they, they took some sleep aids and then they, they took some diet aids and they didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Next thing you know, they're, they're off and running. You had mentioned an assessment tool that you had developed. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Sure. I was uh, working for a facility down in West Palm Beach. And, of course, you know, as you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this issue. So, you know, we were in our, our multidisciplinary treatment team meeting, and I said, you know, and a woman had come in, pretty much the same type of woman I just described. She was 42 years old, and, you know, the treatment team couldn't figure out you know, how they could really help her since she already had like five years of recovery and pretty much knew the program. And I just simply said, well, did anybody check, you know, to see if she was perimenopausal? And I had all these blank stares. You know, well, that that started us on a whole um, mission, so to speak, and a journey of looking into um, developing an assessment that would be more sensitive to women's issues around perimenopause and menstrual cycles. So we got together um, a complete multidisciplinary treatment team, a true multidisciplinary treatment team. We had the medical director. We had the nurse manager. We had the psychologist. Um, we had a psychiatrist stopped in every once in a while. We had myself, and I was the, the um, clinical director. We had... Um, Let's see, we had behavior techs, we had supervisors from the units, um, we had any, in any discipline that was there. We even had, I think, the recreational therapist there, which was a great thing. And we also had the fortune of having um, an intern working with us. So the intern did a lot of research, and we developed this assessment tool. It was oh, approximately nine or ten pages and it was a self-assessment, something that you can hand to the patient, and they could just fill it out just by coloring in, you know, the little bubbles. And pretty much what that did is, at, through every phase of your menstrual cycle, it asked questions. Did you ever have these symptoms? When did you first start your menstrual cycle? When you started your menstrual cycle, was it traumatic for you? You know, for some women, when they first start their menstrual cycle, it's trauma, you know. If and, it, and part of that depends upon how they're introduced to how they're introduced to the menstrual cycle. If a young girl at ten years old or eleven years old has not been told 
what a menstrual cycle is and what might be happening to her soon, and she starts to bleed, she could think a couple of different things. You know, she's dying. She did something wrong. You know, I mean, that could be her very first trauma in her life. So it, it, developing that assessment tool and starting at that point helps the female to talk more about what trauma issues she might have had right from the very beginning. Also, uh, in that assessment tool, we begin to talk about their first sexual experience. And that what happens in that beginning piece is you get to hear a little bit more about whether from the, from the patient themselves about possible um, incidents with incest, you know, the, the rite of passage. Sometimes the incest, what we identify through that tool is that the incest stopped when they got their period. Sometimes the incest started when they got their period for the first time. So it, it gave us a little bit more sensitivity with the patient in terms of identifying some of those issues, and it, and it presents a whole different venue for talking about it. So the, that hormonal shift assessment tool went through um, the beginning of their menstrual cycle, their adolescence, their early adulthood. Um, we went through um, all the way up to perimenopause and menopause. The one piece that I, because I wasn't there long enough to finish this piece, but um, the piece that we hadn't done was postpartum after after pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But I think that would be fairly significant to address and the abortion issues mm-hmm. because we find that with women coming in to addiction treatment too. So that that was quite <clears throat> quite a tool to, to develop and use and it took us about six months to do that. But it's it's simple enough to do. Any any treatment facility can do it if if you have the passion and the energy and the time to do. Yeah. I think that um we had talked a little bit early in the show about the differences between um addiction and substance use disorders and men and women. And I know when I first started in this profession, it was mostly middle aged white men that we took care of and a lot of the research has been done on white men. So, you know, we're still on a learning curve for for people of color and, and for women and for um, for people who are gay, lesbian, and transgender. And I'm just wondering if maybe you could address some of the differences in, in the experience of addiction and then some of the differences in recovery for, for gender, from, from a gender perspective. Sure. For, for men and women, we... Yeah. Well, for, first of all, what we know, and, you know, and we kind of all joke about this just as men and women, but we all think differently. You know, men think differently than women. Women think differently than men. We not only think differently, we process differently. So men typically will process something on a, and this is not a, a, a good or bad thing, it's just a difference, but we process, they process more on a black and white level. Um, we'll be back to talk more about our differences uh, in just a moment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. And if anyone has any questions or comments about hormonal shifting, gender differences in people with uh, substance use disorders and recovery, please give us a call. We'd love to talk with you. Um, before we went to break, Donna, we were talking a little bit about some of the differences and how men and women experience addiction and substance use disorders. And you were just getting started when we had to break. So okay, well, you know, it, it's we hear so many so many jokes about the difference between men differences between men and women. You know, the the internet passes around all sorts of jokes about it, but the reality is that we do think differently, and I think that we coveted the fact that we need to be equal. You know, for years, especially with the women's movement back in the the uh, late sixties, early seventies, but the reality is that we just you know, that was just about equality. It's understanding what our differences are and accepting our differences that's important and that helps in treatment. So if men process more on a concrete level, okay, and women process more, um, I don't want to say complicated, but we process more on an emotional level, okay, then how can we expect to have men and women in a group together and have them be able to get the most that they can out of a group when you're in a heterogeneous grouping? You know, we need to be in homogeneous grouping so that we can um, help men be go down deeper and process, start to process and look at things on a more emotional level and psychological level. And we need to help women begin to process what their feelings and their emotions are about. And the there was a study done back in the, oh, I think it was either the early 1990s or mid-1990s um, about group process. And what they said was that men in a group with women do really well. They do well with women. Part of what that is is that women help them process their feelings. Women, on the other hand, don't do well at all in a mixed group. They do much better in a homogeneous grouping. 
because they have a tendency to focus more on themselves. When they're in a group with men, they're focusing on helping men. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're by, by our nature, by our, our psychological structure, we tend to be more helpers and more caregivers. That's who we are. That's why we're the ones <laughs> that, are, that carry the babies, you know, and, and have, have children that bear the children. You know, and men are the ones that, you know, if you look at it historically and you look at ancient history, the hunters. So they go out and women stay home and nurture. Women are more, um, uh, more prone to community and developing really good community, a good community sense. So staying together with a community and needing each other and relying on each other to process and to move forward. Um, men, if you take a look at the difference between team sports for men and women and how, and how that works, you know, men are more hard-hitting and women are not. So there's, if, if we start to look at the differences between men and women from all different perspectives, you know, then we can surely acknowledge that we need more gender-responsive treatment and not just gender-specific. Gender-specific means that, that you have um, men in their own group and women in their own group and you give exactly the same treatment and you give exactly the same education piece to both groups, but they're separate. And that's not really gender-responsive. That's not developing a sensitivity to what their gender issues are. You know, like we were talking before, the hormonal shifting. Well, women have issues around hormonal shifting. That should be something that's implemented into their, their program on an education component. Men have issues around hormonal um, shifting, and that should be put into their treatment on an education level. Men ex- will experience at some point andropause, which is what, what is considered male menopause. And their testosterone levels drop. That affects their self-image, their self-esteem. Um, they begin to, if they're, if they're married and they're with a female who's going through menopause, they think it's all about her. You know, and this is documented. Um, so they don't necessarily take a look at what they're going through. You know, we hear and we've read about, you know, men who go through their change of life and all of a sudden they're 41, 42, 43, they're getting divorced and they're going with a younger woman. Well, that's, that has to do with what we call the andropause effect. You know, men are looking at, you know, needing something a little bit more than what they've had for the past 20 or 25 years. And, they, and that's a serious thing in recovery. You know, that's a scary thing for men in recovery. Typically, men will come into treatment in their, um, in their late 30s, although I think we're seeing a change in that trend. And there are women that have started to come in earlier and earlier into treatment. Years ago when I started, if, if I had a female in my group, I was amazed. I didn't have a handler. You know, I'd have like eight guys and one woman. You know, today you have enough women coming into treatment where you could do separate groups. You know, and that's, that's a big difference in how we're seeing things today. You know, what's happening with us today. So we have them coming into treatment younger, and sometimes we really don't know what to do. And that's a sad thing. You know, so we need to get more education around the differences between men and women and how they process 
and the differences in how and how they use their chemicals. I know we had uh, David Powell on as a guest a few months ago, and he was talking about how for men, um, they process better when they're doing something that's active. So mm-hmm. um, sitting around talking is not a good way for men to process information, but, you know, doing drumming, going for something that's, you know, doing an activity and talking with men at the same time um, is much more effective than just sitting in a traditional group. That's, and, and, that's exactly right. And, and women, women tend can, to be more relational. So right. that sitting in a group is, you know, it's comfortable for them. And it's something that they're more familiar with. Some some women who are really, who don't like that um, have had some issues around that in their early, early childhood. And that could be because maybe they grew up with brothers. You know, but that, you know, and I'm just using that as an example. It doesn't mean that that's the way it always is, but... You know what? You, what we need to do is take a look at that from a historical perspective. You know, for the female, but that's definitely true. I mean, and that's what I meant when I said you know men are more hard hitting. You know, they they need to be out. They need to be active. They need to be doing things. Yeah. You know, and if you walk into if you walk into a gender responsive program where you have you know a men's unit. You know, a treatment facility where you have a men's unit and then you, you, you know, have a women's unit, you should feel a difference in both of those units. They should not be physically exactly the same as, the, you know, as each other. You should feel when you walk into a men's unit that this is a men's unit. You know, it's decorated for men. It reflects who they are, their history, and the same thing for women. You know, and I've I've walked into treatment programs where I found exactly that, and it's been a very happy thing because I think we're getting more on track with what we're doing in treatment, and it's it's becoming more effective, I think, because of that. When when we talk about gender differences, this is one of the things that we used to think was that trauma was much more prevalent among females, but what we're finding is trauma is almost as equally prevalent among males. Um, just wondered if you want to comment on that. Everything that I've read, you're exactly right. But it's the reason why we haven't been able to identify it as clearly as I think we need to is because we're not asking the right questions. You know, women, oh, I would say probably 10 years ago when we talked about, you know, how many women experience trauma, I think the national statistic was something like 40 or 50 percent. Well, when you begin to do assessments like we were talking about before, the hormonal shift assessment, that goes up significantly. All of a sudden, you're at 75 or 80 percent of the women that you're working with have experienced trauma. Well, I think the same thing holds true for men. I don't think we're asking the question in a sensitive way that allows... um, the guys to tell you or identify what the trauma is. And part of that's our, our machismo. You know, they don't want to, they, they, they don't think that getting, you know, whipped by their dad is, is trauma, is traumatic. You know, or that, you know, if they had their first sexual experience with a guy because they were raped when they were 12 or 13 years old, they might not want to talk about that. Well, and I think as a profession, we've been pretty um, stereotypical as well. Mm-hmm. I think that as a profession, we've been very 
slow on the uptake, looking at gender differences, looking at being gender responsive versus mm-hmm. gender specific. I think that, you know, um, trauma was always about women and it was about, you know, um, sexual trauma or domestic violence and, you know, and men were the perpetrators. Right. You know, so it's, um, I think, I think it's a profession we've been pretty slow. Yeah, and you know, and I think, well, part of what that is is how, you know, where we're educated and how we're educated around that. You know, what kind of research comes out from that? And how much time do we have? And this is the sad part, too. I mean, we, we, there are counselors that are working every day. Every day, they're working 40 hours a week. That's what they're getting paid for. They're probably working closer to 45 or 50 hours a week. That's a lot of time that somebody puts in and dedicates in the helping profession. And how much of that time do they have in terms of research? How much time do they have in developing and learning how to develop better care plans? You know, there's not a lot. And that's, I think, a struggle that we've had in the profession for a number of years. You know, the, the conferences that we attend and we go to are excellent. You know, but it's just for some counselors, they only get to go to one conference a year. You know, and I know that we all, with our certifications and licensure, we need to have get education. You know, some some areas is 20 hours a year, some it's 15. You know, and we need to take a look at what the quality is of that education that's being given. You know, and what the interests are. In other places, I I worked for a um, public funded agency. Oh, a few years back, and they are one of the, the the places, one of the venues where the National Institute of Drug Abuse and SAMHSA, you know, they write for grants and they do research for the government. Well, when programs are are taken away because we have um, we've lost money in the state or we've lost money on a national level, then our research goes away too, and some of those programs have to stop. And that's that's a sad thing, too. You know, we have to really take a look at what our priorities are and try to help the professionals in this field get what they need for from an education perspective, you know, and also help them reignite their passion around it. You know, I think, and I think that's important to do, too, is to keep them passionate about what we're doing because otherwise we're not going to transcend this you know, um, everybody gets the same treatment. We're not going. We're not going to transcend that. We're not going to transcend to the sensitivity for you know multicultural issues, subcultural issues, gender issues. Um, we talked about you know men and women. Well, we can talk about you know African Americans. We can talk about other ethnic groups. We can talk about the the um, you know gay and lesbian issues. And we'll be back to talk about some of those things in just a minute. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, for our final segment. And with Donna Corrente, and we were talking a little bit um, in our last segment about the gender differences and a couple things that we began to talk about in our last segment, um, one of which is uh, the transgender and gay and lesbian issues that, that are account, that the people um, are confronted with and hormonal shifting in those areas. But also, before we get to that, I wondered, Donna, if you could just talk a little bit about one of the gender differences for some women is their ability to access self-help or traditional self-help. And some women are able to integrate into the 12-step recovery groups very well, and other women find it very difficult. So um, could you just talk a little bit about that experience for some women? Sure. The... the, um Self-help groups, more specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which is where most of us end up going because there's so many more Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. You also have Narcotics Anonymous 12-step meetings. And some of the issues I think that that we have as women is that um, the literature was written so long ago and it was more, it was focused on a a male, from a male perspective and written in that kind of language. Now, you know, the bottom line is that if if one really wants to get involved in the recovery process, you make that transition into that and you make it work for you. Um, we we have in 12-step programs 
women's meetings. So, but but there are some women who, when they get out of treatment, they want don't want to necessarily go to an all female meeting because now they're ready to meet some guys. And there are some women who are older who don't feel comfortable going to an all female meeting for whatever reason that is. Part of that depends upon where they are in their recovery process. The language of recovery is pretty much male dominated. There's um, there's a book out that's called uh, The Woman's Way Through the Steps, and it was written by Stephanie Covington. And she wrote that back in the, oh, I think probably the mid to late 80s. And she wrote it in response to the World Organization of Alcoholics Anonymous refusal to um, write the, I think it was the third edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book. Uh, using being more female sensitive. So what she did is she actually, she didn't change the steps, but she interviewed, I think, over 300 some odd women in the country and had them tell their stories through the steps. And it's an absolutely phenomenal book for any woman that's in recovery who has some difficulty engaging in those steps because of the language and the stories in there. So that, that is, that's one piece that I think is very helpful. The other is to go to women's meetings and talk at women's meetings about how uncomfortable you are being at an AA meeting or being in women's meetings. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it does work. And one of the things that works about that is that your focus as a woman in early recovery is on early recovery and not about the, the men that are in the meeting and not about the language that men use when they're in meetings. And again, if we go back to that whole piece of being more gender responsive, men are much more concrete in the way they express themselves and the way that they think. And women are more process-oriented. So it's difficult for women to engage in a group that might be 75% men and 25% women, you know, because women might not get a chance to really express themselves in that particular group. And some of the response that they might get from some of the men might seem a little bit harsh, might seem a little too black and white for them, so they get turned off by that. So my response to it is don't go to those meetings. You know, there are so many 12-step meetings around today. I mean, there are millions of people going to meetings. You know, so there's always an alternative meeting that you can get to that you feel comfortable in. So that that's kind of like my response about that. It's the 12-step process is as old as humankind. You know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, who are the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, were able to put that in a language that um, would help alcoholics understand what they needed to do in order to attain recovery, and that's a blessing. But the real concepts that are in those 12 steps are as, as old as humankind. Um, there's also Women for, Re- for Sobriety, too, which mm-hmm. is a group that's been around for a number of years as well, um, for, for women who are looking for an alternative to traditional 12-step groups. Um, we talked a little bit, too, about uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender issues, and I was wondering, in terms of hormonal shifting and and specific um, ways that, that those folks experience addiction and recovery, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Well, what I know is that it's, it's um, for a lesbian or a gay, 
a person to be coming into treatment or transgender, it's extremely frightening. And part of what's frightening is, do they need to come out to their group? Do they need to tell the group that they're gay or lesbian or transgender? If they do, what's going to happen to them? And, you know, it's not about, oh, you know, they'll be fine, they're in treatment, they're in a safe environment. Well, they're not so safe when all the staff goes home and you have minimal support staff at night in a residential treatment program. You know, so, you know, we have a tendency to to say, okay, you're now in recovery, now you need to get honest. Well, we really need to take a look about, take a look at what that honesty is about for somebody who is, you know, gay, lesbian, or transgender. And how is that going to help them? In reality, how will that help them on all levels holistically? And the piece, the piece around that is how do we truly, as therapists, as counselors, as treatment providers, understand the subcultural issues for a gay, lesbian, or transgender? You know, we, we have them in mainstream. So when a, when, a, when a gay male comes into treatment, he comes in, he goes on a men's unit, and he has a male roommate, and, you know, they, they share a room together, and he is not supposed to have any issues around sharing a room with another guy. And then he's supposed to talk about what his issues are with, his men, with men who are the, generally his sexual partners, okay, and in terms of a, uh, an emotional relationship, too. And he's supposed to be able to talk about that with mainstream or heterosexuals in a group. Well, that's going to be real difficult. I mean, he may be able to identify what he needs to do to not drink or not pick up a drug and be able to connect to 12 steps. But then how do we really help him with the subcultural issues? How do we help him with, okay, now you're going to go from this group and you're going to go back out into mainstream and you're going to go to AA meetings or CA meetings or NA meetings and you're going to get sober when he doesn't really have a social or, or community to go back to that's, that's possibly supportive because he's a gay male. In urban areas, the gay bars are the center of all social activity and information, and it's for exactly. a lot of cities, it's more than just a bar. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly right. Although what we're seeing in some of the urban areas in terms of recovery is that there's more sensitivity to that. But that's being in an urban area. You know, if you have somebody who comes in who's not particularly in, in an urban area, and the only community is in a bar, literally a bar, then how do we help that person? You know, it's there, there. There needs to be some sort of transition, and unfortunately, we don't really have um, uh, what I call transitional living for gay males or for lesbians. You know, for females, they, that will really help with that and develop a community, a sense of community. And I think that's just starting. I think we're starting to get more sensitivity to that. I think that's a whole other topic for a whole other show. Yes, it Um, is. But thank you so much, Donna, for talking with us today and enlightening our audience around hormonal shifting. And um, hopefully those of you who are working with women will be a little bit more aware when you're doing your assessments. And for individuals and families out there, um, please learn more about perimenopause and its effects because 
this will affect you as well in some way, shape, or form. So have a good week, everybody, and thank you, Donna. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week.